Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Byron Lee, a urologist in Cleveland Clinic's Glickman Urological and Kidney Institute. He's here today to talk to us about optimizing surgical management for patients with bladder cancer. So welcome, Byron. Thank you. I'm really, really happy to be here, Dale. Happy to have you here. Let's start out. Give us a little idea. What's your role here at Cleveland Clinic? Yeah, so I'm a bladder cancer specialist here in the Glickman Urological and Kidney Institute. So I see, manage, and operate on bladder cancer patients. Um, I don't do very much of any of the other cancers that the other uh, genital urinary cancers anymore. I've cut down my practice on kidney and uh, and testis uh, and mainly focusing on bladder cancer patients. I do that about two days out of the week. The other three days out of the week, um, I'm doing research. I have a small lab at the Lerner Research Institute where I investigate uh, the genomics and epigenomics of bladder cancer and how they affect uh, initiation, response to treatment, uh, and progression of disease. Excellent. So we're going to primarily focus on on muscle invasive bladder cancer and how we surgically manage that. So um, let's just start off kind of in a in a very broad way because we have a lot of different types of people who might be listening in terms of their their uh, their expertise. So open versus robotic surgery. Kind of wh- where is the field right now? Tell us a little bit about the the difference between the two. Yes. Yeah, so open surgery refers to making an incision in the belly. How long the incision is kind of depends on the surgeon, uh, but it's usually a midline incision. And what happens is uh, that self-retaining retractor is replaced, and then the hands go inside uh, the belly to operate. This is the traditional way that we've done it for many, many, many years. What's more recently uh, been used is robotic surgery to remove the bladder. And the reason why this has moved towards robotics is because Open surgery for the longest time was associated with a number of complications, especially for this patient population that we're talking about. These are patients with multiple uh, medical comorbidities uh, who have a hard time uh, getting through surgery and recovering from surgery. And so they oftentimes get readmitted uh, with uh, dehydration, for example, infections and other issues. The trend towards robotics is basically us thinking about a different way to do surgery for these patients to minimize the kind of impact of the surgery on these patients so that they can recover more quickly. Robotic surgery basically involves uh, making very small incisions uh, in the belly. Uh, These are incisions that are approximately 8 to 12 millimeters or so, and there are usually about five or six of them in the belly. We do it with five here. And what we do is uh, we blow the belly up full of uh, carbon dioxide uh, to create working space in the belly. We fit working instruments through these small incisions, attach these instruments to a a surgical robot. And the surgeon actually does not sit next to the patient, actually sits at a surgical console to manipulate these instruments to carry out the entire surgery. When you take the bladder out, urine has to go somewhere. There's different ways that uh, you can sort of divert that urine, extracorporeal, intracorporeal. Tell us a little bit about the difference. Initially, during the experience for robotics hysterectomy, uh, the extirpative portion was done robotically, but surgeons would make an incision just around the belly button area to do the bowel work, which is which what you're referring to as the urinary diversion. What that means essentially is to take a piece of small intestine, uh, usually the terminal ileum, isolate it away from the rest of the uh, GI tract, uh, reconnect the GI tract, 
Um, the back end of that piece of ileum is hooked up to the ureters, which are the thin tubes that carry urine from the kidney to the bladder. Um, now that they're disconnected, they have to be hooked up to something. So this would be the terminal ileum in this situation. And then the front end, depending on how you configure the urinary diversion, is either hooked up to the urethra, which is the natural opening to the outside world, uh, or to the um, surface uh, of the skin um, right on the abdomen. And that type of diversion is called an ileoconduit. There's a third diversion called the Indiana pouch, uh, which uses a piece of large intestine as well, and a continent catheterizable channel is hooked up to the skin, uh, which you catheterize every few hours to empty the pouch of urine. All of these different surgical options, some of these patients, um, as you've already mentioned, they come in and um, may have a lot of other medical issues. How, how do you decide what's right for what patient? Yes, yeah, so it's tough. Uh, and we have a very, very long conversation with the patient. I think the biggest uh, decision that they make with respect to surgery is the choice of urinary diversion. Um, and there's a lot of data that, to suggest that whichever diversion that the patients choose is probably the right one for them. Some patients really prioritize um, body image. Um, and so a neobladder is probably the right diversion for them, but they have to be dedicated to taking care of the neobladder. And that involves a number of things uh, you know, that we talk to the patients extensively about. Other patients you know, want something that's very, very simple and they don't care about body image as much. Uh, and so the ileoconduit is probably right for them. And uh, the important thing about the ileoconduit is it doesn't really limit you from all the activities that you would otherwise do anyway. And that's how we counsel the patients. Patient counseling is probably the most important part of this. And so they get a chance to decide what's best for them and then we kind of carry out um, you know, whatever they want. There are some strong contraindications for doing a continent diversion like a neobladder, uh, which we will mention to the patient and tell them why we can't do a neobladder for them. But otherwise, you know, it's really patient choice. And so when we, uh, we think about these, what kind of comparisons have you done between procedures on things like recurrence, either local or distant, hospital stay, complications? How, what does that look like? Yeah, so one of the things uh, that we really looked at um, you know, in the beginning of our experience is to compare robotic surgery and open surgery. Now, you know, this has been done in the literature before in, in basically two randomized control trials. There's one uh, randomized control trial of Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, that was published in European Urology in 2015. And they looked at basically 56 robotic uh, cases and 62 open cases. And what they found was that the operating room time was higher for robotic cases, uh, which is not surprising. Um, but the estimated blood loss which much, was much lower uh, for the robotic series. Um, it didn't really change their uh, complication rate or their hospital stay. Now, when we talk about the RAZOR trial, that's a multi-center trial uh, that involved a larger number of patients. And essentially what they found was were similar things. So lower blood loss uh, for the robotic cases, longer surgery time for the robotic cases, fewer transfusions for the robotic cases, but they did notice a slightly shorter hospital stay for the robotic group. Now we looked at our data and we felt that it didn't really reflect our experience at all. And when we switched uh, from open to robotic, we were able to dramatically reduce uh, complications as well. So we published our series in I think 2020 that reflected this. Unfortunately, this is a retrospective series. So again, limited by, by all the biases that are known and unknown to retrospective series. But what we found was again, lower blood loss, decreased uh, length of stay, lower complication rate. In fact, uh, early on in this experience, we had a 20% lower complication rate for robotic surgery and about a 17% lower uh, readmission rate. 
So when we think about complications that happen and decrease complication rate, was it uh, complications across the board? Are there particular complications that you can sort of minimize by going with a robotic approach? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there were complications across the board, but I can tell you the most frequent complications that we experience are kidney injury due to dehydration. Uh, that's a very common thing. Uh, patients struggle hydrating themselves probably for the first few weeks after surgery. Um, and so they frequently get readmitted for this reason. The other uh, complication that we typically see after this is uh, urinary tract infections and other infections. Now with robotic surgery, obviously you're not making a longer incision. So the, the rate of wound complications, we barely, we barely ever see wound complications anymore actually. And uh, urinary tract infections, we typically use prophylactic antibiotics to prevent this um, while the ureteral stents are still in place. Are there differences in pain medication use? Absolutely. You know, uh, it's hard to tell because during this entire era, what we've done was we've also moved to a um, ERAS protocol and ERAS stands for enhanced uh, recovery after surgery. And part of that protocol involves use of a number of uh, non-narcotic pain medications. These are things like lidocaine patches, NSAIDs, et cetera. And so narcotic use was being minimized through other means as well, but I think the robotic surgery probably helped it. So when we think about um, surgical approaches, what, what are the gaps? What, uh, kind of what, what are the things that as you look at how we're doing the procedures now could be improved to improve patient outcomes? That's a great question, Dale. You know, I, I think you know, one, of the, one of the leaps that we have made more recently uh, was the switch from extracorporeal uh, to intracorporeal urinary diversion. I wanna spend just a couple of minutes on that. Um, what that means is instead of making that midline incision after the extirpative portion of the procedure to do the bowel work, what we've done is move toward doing the entire procedure robotically. Uh, so the bowel work and the urinary diversion is done entirely uh, using this, uh, the surgical robot. There's no other big incision other than extending the one of the incisions a little bit just to get the specimen out. As you can imagine, you can't get a bladder and a prostate out through a 12 millimeter incision, that's just not possible <laughs> while leaving everything intact. Uh, so other than that, you know, we, you know, we, we've moved to this intracorporeal approach. I think it does help the patients as well, improves their short-term kind of perioperative outcomes. Okay. I think there are other exciting things uh, that are, that are coming uh, in terms of surgical technique. Surgical navigation is, for example, one of them uh, where, you know, axial imaging can be um, overlaid upon the surgical field. I think this is coming uh, in the near future so that we have a better understanding of uh, areas of the cancer that we may be close to, even though we may not visibly see it. Um, and, you know, that also helps with the robot because with the robot, you have to be clued into the visual cues a lot. What I mean by that is you don't have any tactile feedback uh, from, from, the, um, from moving the instruments. And what you're seeing is how the tissue deforms in relation to how hard you're pulling the tissue, for example. And I think surgical navigation with enhanced imaging would be very, very helpful in these kind of scenarios where you're not exactly sure the extent of the cancer just by the deformation of the tissue. I mean, technology is crazy these days. Of course, my kids, you know, they play video games. Is there any, any incorporation thing like haptics or anything to be able to actually feel what, uh, what's going on in the surgical field? I think that would be amazing, but I don't know anything that's kind of coming across the horizon to, to provide that feedback for the surgeons. When we think about um, multidisciplinary nature of, of most cancers, one thing that seems to be always a, a concern is people coming in for neoadjuvant therapy before uh, surgery. 
How do we make progress in that area? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, having a multidisciplinary program like the, like we have the one here is incredibly important because we're surgeons and this is our expertise here and we can provide all the te- details with respect to how we're going to we're going to do the surgery to the patient. But, you know, we have we have some understanding, of course, of systemic therapy before and after surgery. We know the data, but usually the, you know, the medical oncologist, for example, is the best person to talk to the patient about these kind of things. Um, they, uh, the medical oncologist and, you know, Dr. Gupta is the one who's taking the lead here and she's done a wonderful job of this. She's brought in a number of trials, for example, in the new adjuvant space that are incredibly helpful for the patients. You know, one of the trials, for example, looks at enfortumab with pembrolizumab uh, in this setting for patients who are not eligible for cisplatin. I think that's a patient population that's very much un- underserved when it comes to neoadjuvant treatment. So, you know, we don't hesitate at all sending patients sober to medical oncology to discuss these things because it can potentially improve their outcomes. A couple of other areas from uh, not necessarily, the first, not necessarily straight up uh, surgical, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, of course, is uh, the bulk of bladder cancer. I guess what's uh, what's the current state of things in terms of it got hit really hard with shortages of BCG. Yeah. Where where are we now and and how do we how do we get around these sorts of things? It seems like such a a crazy thing to have essentially treatment stop in a way that it it did. Yeah, I'm fighting that battle right now, Dale, and it, and it's incredibly tough to fight. BCG shortage has been a real struggle with us. What's problematic is the supply is uneven. Uh, what that means is that I can't predict what's going to happen next month, the month after that. And while our patient population with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer continues to grow, I can't tell them for certain you're going to get the treatment that you really need for the kind, kind of cancer that you have. BCG has been around for, I don't know, 40, 50 years now. It's probably still the best drug. It's the very first immunotherapy, I think, for cancer. And it's the best drug for intermediate and high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, which the bulk of our bladder cancer patients have. MD Anderson published a recent series on an updated series on how BCG works, and it's just amazing. These patients do incredibly well after BCG, but we're having a shortage, and so we have to find different ways to overcome that. One, obviously, Merck is increasing the supply for BCG. Other things that we're doing are trying to predict how patients respond to BCG. Why is this important? Well, there are certain patients with just some kind of intrinsic resistance. Their tumors have some kind of intrinsic resistance to BCG. And potentially, those patients would be better served either with a different medication or, uh, you know, if they are high risk, maybe with a cystectomy, for example. Um, We also have to find other ways to augment uh, BCG response, and especially in those patients uh, who are recurring after BCG, um, so that, uh, you know, maybe we can identify a compound um, or a drug target um, that would say, hey, look, you know, you, you have BCG, the cancer is coming back. You would otherwise be in a BCG refractory state, but adding this to BCG would, again, make BCG useful in you. People who are patients who are in the BCG refractory state, you know, there are a number of different compounds in this area that are just coming online. We're all very excited about that. Um, that's a whole nother podcast in itself, I'm sure. I'm not going to talk too much about that. Um, but the future is bright in this field, but we got to get beyond this. Traditionally, surgery for uh, muscle-invasive bladder cancer, back to that, would be radical cystectomy. Tell me a little bit about thoughts in, in terms of bladder preservation and, and, and where the field is in that uh, particular area. 
Yeah, you know, this is this is a great, great topic, Dale. And as you and I both know, um, a lot of cancer care is risk stratification and tailoring our approach to the patient. Um, you know, probably the biggest experience on bladder preservation, uh, the way it's done now, which is trimodality therapy, combination of radical TURBT, transurethral recession of bladder tumor, uh, with concurrent chemotherapy and radiation that's provided by medical oncology and radiation oncology. The way it's practiced now, um, the best data probably come from Massachusetts General Hospital, and they published this in 2017. And the bottom line from the study is that if you select the patients very, very carefully, their outcomes are e almost equivalent to cystectomy. Um, and they get to keep their bladders, which patients, you know, they love that. Nobody wants their, to lose their bladder to bladder cancer. I can tell you that. I mean, it's, it's a big deal uh, to patients, uh, not only just going through the surgery, but, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a life-changing thing. Uh, you know, they're, they're different for the rest of their lives. Now, you know, there are a number of trials that are ongoing and coming online um, that combine different types of systemic therapy in an effort to improve the outcomes for trimodality therapy. And those are all very exciting. Uh, so, you know, so one, there's, you know, immunotherapy in the space now. Um, and uh, another trial is looking at a trope 2 inhibitor, uh, sasituzumab, uh, in combination with chemoradiation. And I think, you know, I, I'm anxiously awaiting, you know, the results of these trials as well. And I find them to be very exciting. You know, one way that we're thinking about doing uh, bladder sparing here at Cleveland Clinic is to kind of update the experience with something called partial cystectomy. Now, for a long time, partial cystectomy has been uh, kind of derided as a inferior oncologic control operation for patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. But I gotta tell you, Dale, most of the studies were published in an era where neoadjuvant chemotherapy wasn't routinely used. Uh, in fact, you know, there were not uh, some of these newer agents that we uh, use for new adjuvant treatment uh, as well. Uh, the other thing that's changed significantly over time is surgical technique, uh, for example, robotic technique. Um, there are other things that have changed, like uh, uh, the use of CISVU, for example, uh, to augment cystoscopy to, to detect more bladder tumors or smaller bladder tumors that would otherwise escape and cause um, a local recurrence. Um, I think what we're trying to do now is to uh, put together a concept as to how to investigate partial cystectomy in this new era uh, and, and add it to all the options that the patients can choose for bladder sparing. That sounds, uh, it sounds pretty promising. And I guess, you know, since we have an opportunity to pick your brain as a urologist for bladder cancer and surgical approaches, last thing I'm going to ask about from that standpoint would be there are other tumors, colon cancers and prostate cancer work some consideration. And, and as you just said, losing your bladder is a big deal. But what's the current thinking about resection of um, the bladder in the setting of metastatic disease? So re resecting the primary. Yeah, great question, Dale. I mean, I think controlling the primary in, in our setting is, is incredibly important. One of the biggest things that patients come back to the hospital for is gross hematuria, renal failure, um, even if it does nothing uh, in terms of, you know, improving their cancer control outcomes, this is a big palliative portion of what we do as surgeons. Um, you know, we've had patients where they just couldn't receive any more systemic treatment because they were bleeding through treatment. And we would help them by, you know, going in and resecting everything as much as we could so that we can get everything clean. They're not bleeding so they can continue to have their systemic treatment, which, you know, they would otherwise not be getting. That's our main role in the situation, but I think it's incredibly helpful for these patients. 
Well, you've given us some great insight in a number of areas of uh, surgical management of bladder cancer, and we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Dale. Really appreciate the opportunity to share our thoughts. To make a direct online referral to our TASA Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancerpatientreferrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.